Rudyard Griffiths here, the executive director of The Hub. Welcome to the Friday Roundtable. Each week on this program, we dig into the big issues and ideas shaping the public conversation with Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, and Stuart Thompson, our editor-in-chief. The goal of these weekly programs is to leave you with some new analysis and insights into the week that was. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gronowski Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening. Stuart, Sean, welcome to the Roundtable. Hey, guys. Great to connect, guys. It never stops, guys. I just, I want a quiet week. I just, uh, <laughs> you know, just have a gentle kind of ease into the weekend on Fridays when we record this podcast. We're doing it today on the 29th of September. And what a week it was. So, Sean, what I think we enjoy doing on this podcast, and I think we do an okay job based on the feedback from our listeners, is to try to think about some higher order questions that come out of an issue that has now been rightly, you know, kicked around the proverbial public square for the last uh, week. And that was the inadvertent, but nonetheless shameful invitation of a former member of the Waffen SS to Canada's parliament to be recognized by MPs and President Zelensky and Prime Minister Trudeau last Friday. So a lot of water has flown under the bridge. And I wonder if you put the Sean Spear drinking cup into it <laughs> and you pull it out. What the heck is the bouquet that we're fi- trying to figure out seven days later? What did we learn, if anything, from this? Um, what does this say about the state of um, where we are on a national embarrassment, an international embarrassment, unfortunately, for Canada and Canadians? We've been at uh, this Friday roundtable for you know more than a year now, and there are some common themes emerging. Um, you know, a topic we regularly discuss uh, is the inattention to economic growth and productivity, and you know that's reflected, of course, in our um, poor GDP per capita figures. We talk a lot about state capacity, so in a way, shifting the conversation from the size of government. Um, to the kind of basic capacity and competency of government. And another subject, guys, that I think we talk a lot about um, is the importance of having a federal parliament comprised of people who are committed to the exercise of national power and uh, a, an understanding of Canada's national interests. And I think what the story tells us this week, um, and it's reflected as well in just news this morning that the Trudeau government is intending to cut a billion dollars out of the D- Department of National Defense budget is we just have a lot of people in Ottawa who don't think about themselves as um, part of an, a national government um, representing a country of national interests. As David Frum observes on our forthcoming episode of In Conversation with David Frum, where, of course, we talk about some of these same issues, he says, we have a lot of politicians who, who think of their job is, as basically managing local politics in the North Bays of the country, as opposed to um, um, thinking about um, the national interest. And and I think that is at the root of what happened this week, you know, rather than um, recognizing the event for what it is, a, a big deal that we have Vladimir Zelensky, this uh, key figure in, you know, big global 
conflict about you know the future of of liberal democracy and so on uh, we had the speaker of the house thinking how can i maximize this opportunity for me locally in my riding and uh, i think in that sense um it does reflect a broader trend um that we've been talking about at the hub and we need people in ottawa who actually take seriously their responsibility as federal legislators to focus on and advance the national interest. Yeah. So I, I had a similar reaction, but a little bit different. I mean, I think there's a line here that we can draw through Chinese election interference, through the implosion of India's bilateral relations with Canada this month. And with this latest, again, inadvertent, but hugely damaging I mean, this is a Russian propaganda coup that we've handed Vladimir Putin and that they are using it uh, for domestic and international media. And that thread, guys, is that we are drowning in diaspora politics. We are in a scenario where our political elites, and this, you know, this is a cross-party failing, they are consistently trading our national interests and our international standing for short-term domestic political gains. Rhoda, you mentioned North Bay and David Frum's quote. You know, clearly he saw an opportunity here to, um, I don't know, bring a local constituent down to, I'm sure, get a photo with him later in the speaker's office to end up, you know, on the pages of the of the local paper, like, come on, man, like, just be serious once, can we? You know, the prime minister, look, I, I, I think it's great that the Toronto-Ukrainian community got to meet President Zelensky, but, you know, it was the prime minister flying with Zelensky to a reception at Fort York. Uh, the other leaders, correct me if I'm wrong, but the other party leaders were not in there i don't know if they were invited they chose not to protest i don't know what happened but it was the prime minister and zelensky holding a reception at fort york in toronto come on there is a domestic political agenda that is being pursued here on the back of billions of dollars of uh of weapons and equipment and funding that's gone from all canadians of all political stripes of all political persuasions to support Ukraine. I don't know, Stuart, I just, I think all of this is connected. It's all part of a, these, you know, this piece, this crappy result this week of the Rota debacle is all just part and parcel of the small beer that our political class uh, likes to drink. It's depressing. It really, this week really brought me down. Yeah, and I would say there's that angle of, you know, diaspora politics kind of leading us on foreign policy. And, you know, it's it is diaspora politics, but it's certain diaspora politics. It's the ones that are in ridings that they're trying to win, which is even more crass. And, you know, seeing the story this morning about a billion dollars coming out of the military budget, you can agree or disagree about whether that's a good idea or not. But the problem now is that that's not a decision anyone's making. That's just something that had to happen because of the fiscal situation in the country. And so you can see the 
the uh, foreign policy goals of the government are being subverted by the domestic policies of the prime minister, which is kind of a theme here. We have Pharmacare coming this year. Uh, that's a condition of the deal with the NDP that the government has to do something on Pharmacare. They have to have some plan and they're going to have to put some money behind it. And it's going to go for five years, whatever, and then keep going after that. The dental plan is expanding too. That was part of the deal with the NDP. The daycare plan from before is also costing money. All of this stuff piles up. And then you find that you don't actually have options anymore. You just have to do the things that are you're forced to do by credit agencies. So um, that, that's a bad spot to be in, that you know your uh, agency no longer is there because of the fiscal state. It's often said that budgeting is an expression of values. And I think, in effect, what you're saying, Stuart, is that the government is telling us that they don't care about Canada's national security. They don't care about Canada's national defense. They don't care about um, our place in the world. What they care about is uh, um, using the federal spending power to advance kind of ideological priorities within a provincial jurisdiction and the so-called care economy. I, I mean, I can tell, I can say to listeners, we're not dismissing um, that issues around healthcare are important. We just ran a, a whole prize <laughs> uh, dedicated to health policy. The point is, um, if you want to get into federal politics, um, then ostensibly you ought to have an interest in the jurisdictional responsibilities of our national government. If you don't, that's no problem. There's plenty of provincial seats you can run in. There's, you can run to be mayor if you want to manage uh, zoning policy in mid-sized cities across the country. The point is, um, you know, I, I turned to Rudyard on this because uh, he, he, he has a, a bit of a historical perspective oftentimes, but it seems to me we have a bunch of people who grew up in the kind of post-Cold War um, period in which there was a relative tranquility and relative prosperity, and it enabled them to pursue all of these different interests when it comes to public policy. But that period is over. You know, one I, we can debate about when it ended. Um, maybe it was when Vladimir Putin invaded Ukraine. I, I would argue, frankly, it was before then, as China shifted from um, uh, shifted to a, a more aggressive and confrontational position vis-a-vis -vis the West. But irrespective, that's over. And we need uh, national politicians in Ottawa who recognize it's over and are prepared to um, play their role, um, you know, exercising national power. Yeah, look, the faint defense outside of the United States that was offered to Canada in its... Um it's, uh, you know, allegations at this point, we have not seen the evidence of uh, Indian um, extraterritorial assassinations taking part on Canadian soil is in some ways a reflection that many of our allies, UK, traditional five eyes allies like Australia, you know, they see these stories of a billion dollars coming out of the defense budget. Is that really an ally that you want that you think is reliable or dependable? I mean, what kind of world do people think we're living in right now? This is not some padded playpen anymore. As we talked about in last week's show, Russia that we share the Arctic with is against us. China is against us. India, the bilateral relationship with a fellow democracy has blown up. May put it back together again, but the tensions that blew it up are certainly not going away. The Khalistani independence movement. These are serious issues. They're going to have long-term consequences for our economy, for our national security. And I just bring it back to the Rota thing, guys, and what happened in Parliament. It just seems like a, you know, just that perfect kind of 
the world sending up exactly what you don't want, but probably what you need, which is just a sign of just, you know, lassitude, self-dealing incompetency that has enveloped um, this parliament, has enveloped a lot of our political class. I just suggest to me, guys, it, you know, I don't, it's time for an election. I really hope we don't have to wait, you know, yeah. two, two more years. I think there's something that's happening now in the country. There's an impatience. You see it on the polls, on the part of people with the government, with the status quo. If we have to go through two years of death by a thousand cuts, like the type of wounding that we experienced this week, I don't know what's going to be left at the end of that to have an election over. I don't know, Stuart. You, you have to pep me up. I've got to go find a happy pill um, <laughs> and uh, you know somehow think that there is a way out of this thicket, this miasma of, again, just self-interested, self-dealing, cutting the defense budget by a billion dollars, inviting, you know, rushing to invite this... Uh, this Ukrainian gentleman, again, this was unintended, but the what I don't like about it was that the instincts behind this invitation were wrong. There was some, there was a poison fruit here that was ultimately plucked and that we had to eat. Yeah, I was actually all fired up to make an even more depressing point there, but oh, uh, <laughs> maybe I'll pivot. <laughs> but like, if you think about the political situation right now, um, you, you're starting to see this happen with the pharmacare negotiations between the NDP and the Liberals, where the Liberals are no longer holding leverage um, because of their poll numbers. And the NDP is starting right. to see their poll numbers stagnate. They need to show their supporters that they're getting something. So if they start driving a hard bargain on this and the Liberals desperately don't want an election, which I think is a rational way for them to be thinking right now, then you can only imagine how much these plans are going to start to bloat uh, from there. Um, and you know, this, the, the thing with the speaker, that wasn't the government's fault. But I think you'll start to see things like that reflected in the polls because Canadians will feel like it feels like something the government would have done. They're not differentiating <laughs> between parliament and government. And that is the problem when polls start to go terminal is you get blamed for virtually everything that goes wrong in the country. Yeah. Let me give, let me give uh, Sean the last word of this. Sean, what I want you to reflect on is it took Rhoda five days to resign. It took the prime minister uh, almost as much time to offer an apology in the house. And it was a curious apology. It was, it was a kind of a half apology or very, certainly a conditional apology. He certainly didn't want to accept, and maybe he shouldn't accept responsibility on the part of his political staff. But the fact that he apologized uh, more on behalf of the house and behalf of the speaker, as opposed to the government and Canadians, I mean, come on, like, again, it's just a sign of like, let's elevate here as opposed to plunge to the basement of whatever is the precise right political domestic calculation in this moment. That should have been a full-throated apology to the Jewish community, to uh, President Zelensky, to our European allies on behalf of not just some slightly mealy-mouthed words around the Speaker and Parliament, but on behalf of all can Canada and all Canadians. Full stop. Yeah, here, here. Um, and I, I think it does reflect a pattern with the Prime Minister, right? Where, and I, which I think is one of the reasons that people are uh, appear to be growing tired of him is that you just always get the sense he's dancing on the head of a pin. You know that every 
thing he says in in the um, aftermath of these types of episodes is been written uh, with a kind of degree of precision um, that feels inauthentic. Um, but I want to wrap up with just a slightly different point, which is we have, a, you know, I think we it's fair to say we probably have a disproportionate number of conservatives who who listen to these episodes. I, w- I want to speak to them for a minute. Um, whatever one thinks of Aaron O'Toole's leadership, the 2021 Conservative Party platform was probably one of the most robust when it came to foreign and defense policy issues that we've seen in some time. Um, and you know, it seems to me Pierre Polyev has had tremendous success uh, at this thus far as party leader principally focused on um, issues around housing and inflation. And I'm not naive. It makes sense that he's going to continue to talk about these issues because of their salience. But he aspires to go from um, the the office of leader of the opposition to the office of the prime minister. And I I think we're going to have to hear from him sooner rather than later uh, how he thinks about the world, how he thinks about Canada's place in the world, what he thinks about Canada's relationship with China, what he thinks about Canada's relationship with India, um, he's auditioning right now uh, for the top job. And I think it's obvious that when he gets to that top job, if he's ultimately successful, foreign policy issues are going to loom pretty large. And I think there's an onus on him in the coming weeks and months to tell Canadians what he thinks about these issues. That's a good sign, would be represent a good sign um, that he's prepared to kind of turn the page on the provincialist politics of the past seven years. Yeah. It's not about running like sewer systems in... Stratford, Ontario. It's like some pretty important stuff with some great powers who are, you know, sharpening bayonets and pointing them at each other. Well, look, when we come back from the break, boy, Sean Spear had a big week this week. His dulcet tones were just, you know, emanating across the country, coast to coast to coast. Stay tuned and find out why, find out how, find out what the heck was going on right after this break. Sign up for The Hub's free weekly newsletter and receive our best analysis and insights on the big issues and ideas transforming our world. Each Saturday morning, we will send you a compilation of our most interesting and thought-provoking analysis and commentary, along with original news reporting on the people and events driving the public conversation. You can grab The Hub's complimentary weekly newsletter right now by becoming a free Hub member. Do that at www.thehub.ca. Again, www.thehub.ca. Grab your free email newsletter and membership. Act now. I'm curious, though, and again, there's so many little points that that I I could make, but, you know, you mentioned, Sean, that uh, your podcast is, I think you said, eighth in its particular category in Canada, that the seven podcasts ahead of it on the list are CBC podcasts. To me, that sounds like a small indication that CBC is serving a niche there, that there are seven bigger audiences for public affairs podcasts than yours, and people are listening to those. Podcasting is just about the most democratized form of journalism that one can do, right? You need basically a phone and and uh, uh, and a recording device. Um, the idea that it, there's a role for a public broadcaster there that can bring to bear, you know, billion dollars in public subsidies that enables it to uh, cross advertise across its different platforms. It it just seems to me if you're thinking about scarcity of public dollars. Um, and the role for 
government intervention in different markets, the idea that we uh, we have a national interest or public interest in using taxpayer dollars to compete with my little podcast um, just strikes me as something that most Canadians wouldn't be um, convinced by, an argument that most Canadians wouldn't be convinced by. Wow, that was Sean Spear on the CBC talking with then host Ian Hannah Mansing about whether we need should have a CBC. What is the future of the public broadcaster? Sean, uh, you wrote a great piece for us this week. It's been super popular on the hub.ca. Uh, you heard a lot of different arguments. You stuck on cross-country checkup for two hours. You should get some <laughs> kind of meritorious award from the uh, the Department of Chivalry at the uh, the hub. Um, well, let's let's set that up. We need one of those. Uh, but tell us, what did you... What do you think? What do you take away from this conversation? Where do you think more importantly Canadians are at on the CBC right now? Yeah, it's a great question. It, it, it is a divisive and polarizing issue. I think that's clear. I've learned that both on the um, on the show last weekend and then in the reaction to my article this week. And, it, you, you know, I don't want to sound um, naive about that, but it seems to me this is fundamentally a technocratic question. You know, the CBC was created in the 1930s um, and then expanded in the 1950s with the advent of radio and television. Um, and it was responding to, I think, a legitimate market gap or what economists would call market failure. You know, that is the market wasn't going to provide service to all Canadians um, because of the, the costs associated and the lack of profitability to go into different smaller markets. And so the case there was a case then for a public broadcaster. I think the, the case for the, a public broadcaster in 2023, certainly one of the size and scope of the CBC is, is much weaker. And so, um, you know, I think there's an onus on the CBC and, and policymakers to essentially revisit the underlying assumptions behind the public broadcaster and say, where are there ongoing market gaps? Uh, where have previous ones been essentially solved by the market, including, of course, the rise of the internet? And I think the net result of that rather technocratic exercise would be, if not full defund of the CBC, then certainly a right sizing of it. And um, I heard a lot of our other arguments um, that struck me as um, interesting, but ultimately tangential to that kind of core yeah. question. Um, well, let's let's get into some of these alternative arguments. Come to you, Stuart, on this, because you think a lot about these things as a journalist. One of the things that Sean mentioned in his piece and that came up in the discussion on cross-country checkup with Ian Hanneman saying was this idea that the CBC is somehow uniquely and importantly positioned to deal with disinformation and that disinformation is a scourge in our society. And that the kind of, I would say in terms of Catherine Tate's like hierarchy of why the CBC is there, disinformation often, at least from her calculus sounds like, you know, reason number two, right behind you know, furnishing Canadians with, you know, news and culture and telling their stories from coast to coast, the usual kind of CBC palaver. What's your sense on this, Stuart? I mean, do we do we need the CBC as a disinformation tool? I mean, I think we do a pretty good job at the hub. And I think other people generally have pretty strong feelings about not sprouting disinformation and actually trying to combat disinformation at least when we see it at the hub what's what's your take on this yeah I, I think there is a fairly good broad argument that a robust media is a good thing to have um 
to fight off disinformation. Um, I think the argument gets murkier, though, when you say the CBC is the only thing that can do that. Or actually, I think when journalists start to consciously see themselves as bulwarks against disinformation, I think that sometimes goes awry because they start to see disinformation everywhere they look. And there actually is some pretty good research. I wrote about it um, last year about explainer type journalism, that, that kind of well actually explainer type journalism. Um, it does actually subtly change people's minds, but it tends to have the effect of making people trust journalism less. <laughs> and I think it's the tone. And I think that is the right. trouble with journalism is that um, when you start to do that, when you start to feel like it's an ideological position rather than, you know, fighting disinformation, uh, it becomes a problem. And I think that line is hard for journalists to see sometimes. Yeah, that's a great segue to what I really took away from your piece, Sean, and listening to you. At least I fa I didn't actually fast forward it on the podcast version of Cross Country Checkup. Uh, <laughs> it is the kind of audio equivalent of watching paint dry. So <laughs> I was I was not willing to do that on my on my Sunday uh, evening. But what I took away from it, Sean, was this also this strange kind of tick at the CBC where they they feel that what they are and what they represent in terms of media and culture is somehow authentic. We, we would use the term at the hub organic and inorganic, right? And again, these are ter advertising terms, but it's like, like organic content is content that, you know, users generate or that they come to you on their own accord. When in fact, a lot of content, and we have some content like this at the hub, we, you know, amplify some of our content vis-a-vis, -vis, you know, media spends on Twitter and Facebook. That's inorganic content. That's audience coming to us because we push content at them. And I really felt it revealing in that exchange you had with Ian Hanna-Mansing where he was kind of saying, well, you know, Sean, you have, you're pointing out that you have an eighth ranked podcast in you know this Apple store cat category on the Apple podcast app. But, you know, of the other 10 top ranked podcasts, you know, we have eight of them and, you know, seven of them are higher than you. And isn't that a sign that we're doing all kinds of great things for Canadians and we're so popular. And maybe you could explain, Sean, just why that seems to suggest just a, a myopia. I don't know, a, a willful blindness about what the heck the CBC actually does. Like this is not <laughs> organic. This is not organic. Yeah, um, it's a great example. Part of my case on the show and in the article that you were kind to mention um, is that um, if you're thinking about where there may be ongoing market gaps that would justify a public broadcaster, one of the weakest cases must be the world of podcasting, which is about the most democratized and kind of egalitarian form of, of journalism and media, right? I mean, you basically need a phone and you're a podcaster. Um, and yet the CBC doesn't have one podcast. It has multiple podcasts um, that, as you say, Rudyard, are able to leverage the publicly subsidized platform that CBC has built over 100 years. Um, and At the so tune of $2 billion a year of spending on eyeballs to come to their TV shows, their radio shows, their website. This is This is not like... A field of dreams, folks. <laughs> this is a a marketing advertising enterprise with you know content injected into it as the kind of chum that's thrown out into the digital waters to try to lure Canadians to the CBC. 
Precisely. Uh, so I said on the episode that we're quite proud that our relatively small organization has the eighth most popular Canadian-based podcast in the category Society and Culture. Let me thank listeners uh, for that. Um, but that seven of the eight ahead of us are CBC Productions. And Hannah Mansing, who I must emphasize was yes. fair and, and neutral and I thought did a great job given the complicated discussion said, well, in effect, isn't that proof that there is a market demand for our content? And, and I said two things. One, the point you just made, which is um, that demand is uh, less organic than, than one might think. You know, you gave us a billion and a quarter on um, public subsidies. I suspect we could do better than eighth. Um, we might aspire to seventh most popular. Um, but the second thing is, and this is kind of counterintuitive. I've encountered this online in response to my article, just because people like the parts of the CBC or they enjoy CBC programming doesn't justify um, the, the public expense. Um, I, I don't, you know, I like a lot of CBC programming, but, but you know, that there has to be a public policy case greater than we like it. I mean, there. think of all of the ways in which public policy could go awry if the only underlying case for some kind of policy intervention is people are going to like it. Um, cotton candy is very popular, <laughs> I hear, amongst young people. Let's have a national cotton candy strategy for Sean Spears' uh, two-year-old. Uh, I think that would be great, Sean. Let's do it. <laughs> yes, precisely. So it's a very long way of saying, um, you, you know, I, I, I don't want to sound um, sterile or technocratic, Um but a lot of the arguments you see in reaction to the kind of challenge to the CBC public monopoly strikes me as, as a separate and apart from the core question, which is, is there an ongoing public policy case for a $2 billion um, public broadcaster that covers um, the country from coast to coast with a wide range of, of content from entertainment to news um, and I won't even get into the opinion journalism that they do or the massive advertising um, that they do. And I, I think if you look at it um, in a kind of clear-eyed, dispassionate way, the answer is no. And then the only outstanding question, it seems to me, is what, if any, justification is there for a, a smaller, narrower public broadcaster? I think that would be a more constructive conversation. And I hopefully that's where Pierre Polyev and the conservatives are going as they start to put meat on the bone. Um, to explain what precisely he means when he says that his, it's his intention to defund the CBC. So Stuart, to pick up on that, we've got you know a government that's unleashed somewhere in the order of half a billion dollars, uh, at least in planned expenditures. I don't think it will be all used up by any means for uh, payroll subsidies to media organizations across Canada over the last number of years. I believe that's coming up for renewal shortly. Then we have Bill C-18, which we talked a lot about at the Hub. This is the kind of link tax on Meta and Google. Meta is out uh, of news now. Google may follow. I'm just curious, Stuart, I've always tried, maybe you could help me try to square the circle that we obviously, rightly so, have um, a debate, a live debate about you know, the viability of mainstream incumbent media, but also a lot of really important local media providers and the government's created, you know, its theory of the case through legislation and subsidy about sustaining media. But then there's this massive public subsidy north of a billion dollars for the CBC 
that to be honest with, like about the hub, we compete directly with the CBC. There's no if, thens, or buts about it. Their content is free. And to me, that is the single biggest obstacle that they represent, that they have habituated hundreds of thousands, millions of Canadians to the idea that news, opinion, analysis is free. So good luck putting up a paywall and trying to monetize the hub. Not that we would do that. That's not part of our strategy. Luckily, we have generous foundation and individual donors who underwrite our operations. But I don't know, Stuart. I just I think the argument against the CBC is just as media itself in Canada becomes under greater and greater financial stress and real peril if post media blows up, for instance, or we have some you know bigger event, you know. What just happened? We had the Metroland papers lay off six, 700 uh, staff here in Southern Ontario. To me, that is where the CBC is running into the biggest kind of uh, sore thumb out there that everyone can see, which is it just runs counter to supporting what's left of the media and what's left of arguably the public service journalism that they are there to do. That is their rationale. What's your take on that? Yeah, there are some sobering numbers in that the programs you mentioned. Um, I was looking into that this week where the, the labor tax credit, which is a per journalist program, was expected to cost $90 million last year. It only cost $35 million. So that means either the panel responsible for approving people to be part of this program isn't approving as many people as was expected, or more likely layoffs have been so numerous that the, the program's only being funded for a third of what it was expected. The other part of it, the subscription tax credit. So you get a tax credit if you subscribe to the Globe and Mail or somewhere else. Um, that's about half uh, of what they expected. So that means people aren't reading or getting the tax credit in the numbers they expected. So even these bailout programs that were meant to prop up the legacy media are not working in the way they hoped. And the, the story that I wrote this week was what you know the newspaper publishers trade association is saying well give us more money give us instead of 25 percent we want 35 percent labor tax credit um which is somewhat in response to c18 I mean we don't have meta involved in that so the numbers will be lower there if Google does strike deals well, but so just a key point there it's 35 percent not a fifty five thousand uh, dollar salary subsidized within a newsroom but eighty five thousand so yeah. it's it's 35 percent of a much higher salary cap that they want yeah. now subsidized across newsrooms. But yeah, they saw no, no, they just saw that money was sitting there, basically, I think is what happened. And, um, you know, it, we've talked about this before, which is that even the money involved with C18, which the government is, you know, theoretically trying to get out of Meta and Google, these aren't big numbers. This isn't a billion dollars. This isn't huge numbers they're spending on pharmacare. This is a pretty small amount of money that the government could probably just pony up if they want to. And I think that's probably what will happen now. Um, the The trade association for the newspapers was saying, we'd like to hear about this um, in the fall update rather than the spring budget. And I think that's that's an interesting thing because the, the Google deadline for C18 is at the end of the year. So uh, they might be getting a double whammy here if they get both those things. There's a, a ton of information there, uh, great insight. I'd encourage listeners to check out Stuart's piece. But I mean, to get back to kind of brass tacks, um, there are all of these external factors, um, I think, representing new threats to the CBC, some of them political, some of them technological, some of them reflect changes in the broader media landscape. And what strikes me, Rudyard, is that rather than 
looking introspectively at and proactively about how the CBC can reconceptualize itself to continue to have kind of relevance and resonance, you see the president and CEO, Catherine Tate, essentially lashing out at Pierre Polyev. Um, and you just get the sense that the CBC strategy is to cross its fingers and hope that an election outcome um, doesn't put it in peril. And I just think that's a very um, unconstructive, unsustainable um, path forward. Like every part of our society is being disrupted by technology and, and other social developments. And there's no reason to think that the CBC, you know, its current budget and its current mandate and so on has been written in stone by the hand of God. And, um, and I just, you do get the sense that at least at the top, um, there's a kind of stasis that I think puts the CBC um, at real risk. Terrific, Sean. Important notes to end on. Uh, let's do this all again next Friday. But before we go, just a reminder to our listeners, check out the winners of the Hunter Prize, $25,000 awarded to our top paper. It's a really interesting, I thought, thoughtful idea of using uh, at-home care for seniors to try to free up emergency beds in rooms across Canada. It's a result of a nine-month uh, contest that we ran courtesy of the Hunter Family Foundation for the inaugural prize. We'll do it all again next year. Pick another big public policy topic to crowdsource uh, creative solutions from across Canada. So go to the hub right now, www.thehub.ca. You can check out all the winners, all top 10 papers. We're going to continue to write about them. We're going to have some original journalism uh, exploring each and every one of these ideas and challenging policymakers to take them up as efficient and impactful solutions to reducing wait times across Canada. Thanks guys for coming on the program. Talk to you next Friday. Thank you for listening to the Friday Roundtable. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub. I've been in conversation with Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large, and Stuart Thompson, The Hub's Editor-in-Chief. This program was produced and edited by Amal Atar Guzman. You can access the audio versions on our website at www.thehub.ca. And finally, you can subscribe to The Hub podcast feed on virtually any audio program. We've got all kinds of terrific conversations featuring some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers discussing the big issues and ideas transforming our world. Available right now for your listening pleasure. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the IRA and Maxine Granosky gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.